We've looked the last few weeks at some Old Testament prophecies about Christ and about His birth. We looked a few weeks ago at Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, so you can turn there if you'd like, but just as a quick review. Isaiah chapter 7, we looked at verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. We talked about the importance of the virgin birth. We talked about original sin and how the sin curse has been passed down. We talked about the need for Christ to be both fully God and fully man. We talked about how that was so important and how that should be marvelous and wonderful in our eyes, as the Scripture says. Flip a chapter or two forward in Isaiah chapter 9. You looked at verse 2 through 7. I'll just read part of that this morning. It's familiar to us. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We talked about this and how a child has been given unto us and how maybe counterintuitive that might seem to have it work this way, but this is how God saw in His infinite wisdom to see fit to perform these things. And the zeal of the Lord would do this on our behalf. We talked about how a child was born and given to us and what it means to be a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. As I've been working on this, I've realized, as with most things in Scripture, the more time you spend looking at them, the more you're fascinated by them, and the more time you could spend unpacking thing after thing after thing. One of the things that I kind of skipped over a few weeks ago, <clears throat> excuse me, when we, excuse me, when we read that section, was it talks about being upon the throne of David. And so I want to look at that today. If you'll just turn two more chapters forward in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. It reads as follows, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of the eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity, for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And their righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the gird of his reins. And so we see here another beautiful prophecy of Jesus Christ's birth, of his coming, and some descriptions of how it is in fact that he will live. But to fully understand this and really unpack the importance of this, we have to establish some some background and some facts first to make sure we understand how and why this is important. So perhaps the first question we have is, who is this Jesse person that we're talking about? Why does Christ 
come out of Jesse? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Jesse. We do know a few things. We know that he is the great-grandchild of Ruth and Boaz. So I would assume, I don't know this, and I don't know that a way to really prove it, but it's likely that he knew Ruth and Boaz. Kind of interesting to think about. We know this Jesse was no one great, if that, if that makes sense, no one special, no one of any great acclaim per se. We also know, and we'll probably save this until next Sunday, he was born in this little tiny town of no consequence called Bethlehem. Interesting. Well, I'm sorry, at least David, his son, was born there and he lived in Bethlehem. But we know that Jesse had eight sons. Uh, seven were much older, or at least old enough to go off to battle and uh, perhaps be made king one day. But then there's this little boy named David, little shepherd boy. So Jesse is King David's dad. That's his role in all of this. And we don't really know much else about him. But this is actually really, really important because what we know uh, from Luke 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, is that Jesus Christ is of the house and lineage of David, and David's father is Jesse. So that's the connection that's important for us to understand. It's also very important for us to understand that there is a lot going on here in these scriptures that we really need to, to grasp to see the power and importance of this. We need to remember that when David was made king of Israel, God made him some promises. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see some of this. It says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And then later in verse 16, it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so we see some beautiful prophecy here of God making a promise to David, again, the son of Jesse, the father, right? And he's making this promise that he is going to do an amazing work out of David's line uh, from his blood, in fact, it says, right? So we know that there's going to be something that happens, some type of ruler, some type of king who is going to come from the line, the physical birth line of David, and is going to become a great king. It says flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, and he is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, this isn't Solomon, and we know that because this is talking about something that occurs um, later on. But he's talking about establishing this throne and this kingdom forever. It says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so we see this beautiful imagery already starting that probably very few realized at the time of what would ultimately happen is there is a Messiah who will come, who will be born of your bloodline, of your lineage, and will be a, um, a king who will establish a kingdom forever in perpetuity. And your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and I will establish your throne forever. This is a really tremendous promise. But we have a real problem because it doesn't seem like it happened at first. In fact, it doesn't seem like it happened for a very, 
very, very long time. So again, we go back and look at our history. We have to understand what happened. So the first king of Israel was Saul, and then it was David, and then it was Solomon, and Solomon and Bathsheba had Rehoboam. And during Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom was split in two. So somewhere around 975 B.C., and so we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you've listened along through the Daily Audio Bible in the last year or so, you've learned a lot about those two kingdoms and how important they are. If you haven't started that practice, we are only days away from the new year. And if you're looking for a good habit next year, I strongly suggest that one. So we had these two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. They were divided and they were not united together as they had been under the first four kings. And so we have this problem because it doesn't seem like everything's going well. So we have this division almost a thousand years before Christ is born of the two kingdoms. But it gets really worse than that. And what we see is this southern kingdom, or Judah, where Jerusalem was, uh, is given over to idolatry. And we see an entire prophet, Jeremiah, who comes and is telling them over and over again, stop the idol worship or you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And of course, they didn't do that, and so in fact, they were. And somewhere around 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in and utterly destroys the southern kingdom. David's line is completely cut down. Notice I said cut down. Notice we're talking about roots and stumps and things like this. David's line completely ends there. We can go back and trace some of the kings that were after um, Solomon and after his son and his son and his son. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes, it's gone completely. But Jeremiah, in his uh, warnings, also has a prophecy. Jeremiah 23 and 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign wisely as king and will administer justice and righteousness in the land. So Jeremiah, in the midst of all the warnings saying, do not engage in idolatry and return unto me, is still at the same time forecasting and telling the people that someday God is going to bring forth a branch out of David who is going to rule wisely with justice and with righteousness in his hand. But we go for almost 600 years before we ever see that happen. And during this time, we see the people lost, waiting for a Savior. Just try and put that into perspective. You know, we can look back. We're a very, very, very young country and a very young land, if you want to call it that, of at least recorded history. 200, 250 years. You think waiting 600 years with kingdom after kingdom coming in and destroying your culture, taking your wisest people captive, and on and on and on, waiting, waiting, waiting for the prophecy to come through, doubting whether it's true. That's what this season is about. And we went through Advent and followed it to some degree a few years ago. It's the idea of we're waiting for a Savior to be born. 
waiting for these things to come true, waiting for there to be something that comes up out of David, all this uh, discussion about how this is going to happen, how God is going to make this happen. How could it possibly happen that 600 years after the last person who was of David's line was dethroned and Jerusalem completely destroyed? How will this ever come to fruition? Well, through God, all things are possible. And what we see here is this image of a dead stump or a dead root, something that's been cut down. We, we, we read this so quickly, sometimes we don't stop and think about it. But what we have here is this vision of a stump or a root that's been dead, the tree that's completely gone. It's no longer growing, and all of a sudden, this little tiny shoot comes growing out of it. And that shoot is, I believe, Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know that? Well, there's a lot of good ways to know that. Let's go through a few of them. We certainly will not be able to hit all of them. Let me start with genealogy. Uh, you can turn to Luke for the, uh, the first part of that. Luke chapter 3. I'm just going to hit a high point because if I tried to read all the genealogy, I would not do well with that. Some difficult names in here. I pointed this out a few, I guess, last Sunday, whenever I preached on the virginity of Mary. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and it has a very peculiar but important statement in here. It says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, the writers are giving us a very important clue, just a reminder that he was not physically the son of Joseph. He was, in fact, the son of God. But nevertheless, we see down here the history of Joseph. Where did Joseph come from? And we scroll on through, if you're scrolling or turning your pages down to verse 31 and 32. It says, which was the son of Nathan and which was the son of David, which was the son of Jesse. And so we see that on Christ's father's side, his adoptive father's side, if you want to call it that, he was related by law to David. But we can also turn to Matthew, and let's look at Mary's genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, we see this as well. This time we get the account of Mary's genealogy. 1 and 6, And Jesse begot David the king, and David begot Solomon, and so on and so forth. And so we see on both sides of the genealogy, both on the physical bloodline side through Mary, and on by um, legally on the father's side, we see that Jesus Christ is related and comes from David, the former king, and ultimately from Jesse, his father. Maybe that's not very convincing. Most of you don't usually disagree with me, but maybe that's not very convincing. Okay. Let's, uh, let's look at a few other passages here. Turn to Matthew 15 and 22. Matthew 15 and 22. We see some interesting things go on here. And if, again, this is, this is why this is so vital for us to really dig in and understand because it makes the Scriptures come alive more fully in our lives. Matthew 15 and Start with 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. 
My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Now again, remember, the people of this time would have known and have been prophesied that what's going to happen? Someone is going to come out of the line of David and is going to sit on the throne with all perfection and rule. And so when she is saying, oh, son of David, what she's saying to him, is she's identifying him as the Messiah, the one who will be coming. This is not just going up and saying, well, good teacher. This is coming up and saying, I know the scriptures that say that there will be someone who comes from Jesse and then to David. And you are that man. You are the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. This is vitally important. This happens several times when people come to Jesus. In fact, there's over 17 times that he is referred to in the scriptures as the son of David. And we should not pass this by too quickly. You can turn a few more chapters, Matthew chapter 21. I want to read just one other example here. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse... um, 13, just to catch you up here, if you remember verse, I'm sorry, chapter 21, Christ is triumphantly riding into Jerusalem. Everyone's very excited at that moment. The same people who are shouting Hosanna and praise him are probably the same voices that are yelling crucify him only a short time later. But at that moment, everyone's excited and he comes as a king. We can, again, there's so much it's hard to know where to talk about, but there's Old Testament prophecy that talks about how he'll come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he does. He fulfills that one, too. And he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and he finds that the uh, temple is being overrun with money changers and people with corrupt uh, habits and people who are trying to sell indulgences and all types of wickedness. And he goes in and he runs them all out and he cleans out the temple and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And then immediately following, we see what happens here, starting with verse 13. And he says unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the uh-oh, son of David, they were sore displeased. And they said unto him, Hearest what they are saying? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, they have, I'm sorry, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings has Thou perfected praise. See, Jesus Christ knew fully well what these people were saying. They were declaring him to be the rightful king. Declaring him both an act as he proceeded into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament that said he would come this way. Fulfilling by healing people, by clearing out the temple. And those people who were calling him, Hosanna, praise to God, the son of David, saying, you are rightfully our king. And he knew exactly what they were saying, and they knew what they were saying. And what he is saying to those who are upset about it is, listen, out of the mouths of babes, they speak the truth. We see that sometimes today in very young children, don't we? Children just just walk up and just point something out, and you're like, wow, that's painfully obvious. Because they didn't have the filter. 
That's what Christ is saying here. Look, you can be upset about this. You as the scribes and the Pharisees, those who are the religious ruling elite of the day, you can have all your plans about how you think God is going to bring this into fruition. You can have all your thoughts about who David is and how David's going to come back to life and take over, which is what some of them thought. But Jesus Christ is standing here and saying, no, they are correct. I am the son of God because I am the son of David, the root of Jesse. And so now we see why they got so upset. I want to kill him over this. You can't proclaim to be God. You can't proclaim to be the king. But Jesus Christ, in fact, had proclaimed it. We could continue on and talk about this. There's other verses. I'll just turn real quickly. There's a lot of flipping today. I apologize. I don't really apologize, but there's a lot of, a lot of flipping today. Romans 15, 8 And I'm going to skip a few, but I'll start with verse 8. It says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm, here it is, the promise made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, for his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and laud him, all people. And again, uh, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. And so here again, we see this confirming idea that Jesus Christ is going to come out of the root of Jesse through David, down through the line. He is going to rise and he is going to become the ruler. And he is coming not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And I'll read that verse in just a minute. We see in other places in Isaiah 4 and 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. In Revelation 5, 5, in the very end of time, it says this, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And if you want to turn back to Isaiah, we're going to mainly conclude there with some verses. Back to Isaiah 11. Earlier I was quoting, or I was reading Romans. What Paul was quoting is Isaiah 10, sorry, Isaiah 11, verse 10, where he repeats it. It says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign to the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And so I think there is no doubt by uh, nature of the lineage of Jesus Christ, based on the predictions and the prophecies of where he would come from, and based on what other people said about him, and also based on what he himself has said as the son of David coming from the line of Jesse, we see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy made to David thousands and thousands of years ago. That Jesus Christ is the one who will sit on the throne. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And we see the beautiful nature and the way that this all unfolded through history. 
We see the history of obedience to do what is right and what is wrong passed down all the way from Ruth and Boaz to do the right thing. And the resulting son of Jesus Christ. And who knows how many times obedience was required over and over again through the generations for Christ to be born the way that he was. We see this as the tree of Jesse. In fact, I had heard <clears throat> recently and a couple weeks ago and didn't make the connection until a couple days ago that there's some Christmas traditions called the tree of Jesse. Anybody ever heard of that? I don't typically do that among Baptist folks, but uh, there is an Adventist tradition called the tree of Jesse. And it's this idea kind of replaces the Advent calendar. And every day you're hanging on a new uh, person on the tree to teach the history and lineage of Jesus Christ. It's a very interesting tradition. You might want to look into it. Uh, it comes much earlier than our Christmas tree as we traditionally think of it. But all that aside, I want to focus now on verse 2 for just a minute. Now that we understand who Christ is and why he's coming and where he's coming and how he's a branch that's growing out of the root of Jesse and then David and then so on and so forth to ultimately take the rightful place on the throne, we see some very important things and messages about how this Messiah will behave, what he will be like. And in fact, there's seven attributes listed here. We've talked about the number seven recently. It's generally a very holy number. And so in, I'm back in Isaiah, if you haven't caught up. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we see the following. It says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, of the fear of the Lord. Does that sound like the Jesus Christ that we see recorded in the New Testament? Absolutely it does. We see this is a prophecy about what Christ is going to be like. There's the seven attributes. Now I want you to notice something. It says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And in the verse before it talks about him growing out of uh, the stump. Understand that these are things because Christ took on the nature of man and yet retained some nature of God. But it is the Spirit of God that does these things in Christ. Just as we must rely on the Spirit of God to be the one who works and wills and acts in us to do anything good, Christ did likewise. It was not through his own power, but through the Spirit of God in him. So let's look at these for just a minute. The Spirit of God will rest on him. The Spirit of the Lord. Well, we know this happened. There's multiple verses we could talk about. But Jesus Christ certainly knew who he belonged to. And there was certainly no doubt about that. And he could call other people out and tell them that they didn't know their uh, manner of spirit. In fact, Luke 9 and 55, he says, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. But he knew that he was. He knew that he was from the Father, that he was given the Spirit of God, and he knew exactly who he was. Many times in our lives, especially when we're young, we're trying to figure out who we are. Well, Jesus knew because the Spirit of God told him. And I will contend today, and some of you will say that's not very satisfying. If you let God tell you, he'll tell you who you are today, too. He'll tell you. You might not like it. In fact, the first time he tells you who you are, he's going to tell you you're a horrible person. And you deserve death. And your nature is to hate me. And I'm just to punish you. 
And if you never get past that and go on to faith, he's never going to tell you who he wants you to be. But for those of us who want to know who we should be, ask. And let the Spirit of God rest on us. It says he had the Spirit of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. He is wisdom. Christ Jesus is wisdom. Wisdom is not a part of who he is. We did a long study in the attributes of God. God isn't this 10% this and 5% this and 4% that. He is all of those things and all of those things are from him. And he is those things. Jesus Christ is wisdom. That's the spirit of God. Luke 2 and 52, we see this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and nature and favor with God and men. At some appointed time, as Jesus got older, we don't know a lot about his childhood. We know that he increased in wisdom. We see here an understanding. Spirit of wisdom and then understanding. I keep repeating this verse because it keeps fitting in every sermon. Hebrews 4 and 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Jesus Christ knows and understands. You think you've had a temptation? Imagine what he was tempted with. Think you've had a struggle and a trial? Imagine what he went through. Not only does he know, he's not sitting in a lofty position saying, see, I told you so. He understands and he wants us to talk with him in a way to know that he understands the trials and the tribulations and even the good things that we're going through. He understands. He has the spirit of counsel. Again, God can tell you who you are. He can also tell you what you should do. That's counseling. That's giving advice. That's letting someone be a commander in charge of you. We looked at these verses before. Isaiah 9 and 6 says he will be called a wonderful counselor. He he alone can tell you what to go. He has the spirit of God telling him what to do, giving him a a guidance on how to do it. Yes, strength or might, your translation might say. Hebrews 1 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, God is strong enough to do everything and anything, and that is resting on who Jesus is. He has the spirit of knowledge. Means Christ knew everything. Like literally. <laughs> That's why he knows what you're thinking. That's why he could look to his disciples in Luke 5 and say, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Or why are you reasoning this in your hearts? Because he knew what they were thinking. Let us not be so fooled to think that this isn't true today. No matter what we think, our private thoughts, God knows what they are. And importantly, he had the fear of the Lord. I read this recently too, John 5, 19. So Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 
And so we see these seven amazing uh, characteristic traits of who Jesus Christ will be. And all we have to do is look through the New Testament and see that every single one of these is answered by the very way that Jesus behaved in his nature and who he was. So yes, he fulfilled prophecy by being born of a virgin. Yes, he fulfilled prophecy by being related on both sides back to David and ultimately to Jesse. Yes, he fulfilled prophecy by doing all these things, but also by living the life that God said through his prophet Isaiah, he would in fact live. None of this is made up. None of this is a coincidence. None of this is an accident. He's more than just related by ancestry. He is perfect through the prophecy of how he would behave. We see more about his characters in in verses 3 through 5. And he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of the eyes, neither reprove after hearing of his ears. I thought a lot about this one. And again, I could preach a whole sermon on this one. How do we judge other people? And Just in case you don't remember from a few years ago, yes, we are, in fact, supposed to judge other people. That verse has been abused a few times. How do we judge other people? Well, if we're thinking about it from a court perspective, we go in and we want to hear testimonies about what someone did and see the evidence against them, don't we? Jesus Christ doesn't have to do that because he knows our hearts. He doesn't have to hear or see any of the testimony, and he can still make a righteous judgment for or against us, whatever the matter may be, because he is, in fact, God. We can't do that. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek for the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." We've talked all about this before, too, that with God speaking uh, things into existence and with the very word that he spoke, people will fall to their ground. And all he has to do is speak these words and people will obey instantly anything that he says or he does. And the righteousness shall be the gird of his loins and faithfulness the gird of his reins. Righteousness and faithfulness will be tight around him. It will be a part of who he is. We see all these things and look to a wonderful and beautiful Messiah and Savior. And then going back to verse 10 that I mentioned before. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand as an ensign for the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. This is not just for the Jews. And that's the beauty of it. This is for all people. Gentile means non-Jew, basically. This is for all people in all times. Jesus Christ came for all of us. It talks about him standing as an ensign or a symbol or a banner, if you will. That can be translated in multiple correct ways. This idea that Jesus Christ will be a banner or a symbol for us. And let's think about that for a minute. What happened to him? Well, he was raised on a pole. John 12 and 32 says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. And so we see again the beauty and the richness of the scriptures. From what Isaiah said to a thousand years later when Jesus Christ is nailed unjustly to a cross and he is raised before all men on a hill and he is set as a sign that everyone can look to and see Jesus Christ, the innocent, who is murdered on my behalf. He is the sign. He is the symbol. And as it says in Exodus, he is my banner. Remember that sermon. 
And Moses built an altar, an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my symbol. And what is his banner over me? It's love. Love that he would do this. Love that he would come. Love that he would live a life and suffer all the things. Love so that he could have wisdom. Love so that he would have understanding that I go through. Love that he can give me the right counsel. Love that he has strength and that he has knowledge. That love that he followed what the Lord told him to do. All of these things come crashing together and we see down through the ages the entire design that is here and the amazing things that God has done for me and for you. Depending on your translation, that last part of verse 10 can read as follows. Those who seek will find a glorious resting place. Philippians 4, 7, perhaps a verse we're familiar with. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. See, the reality is this, as we rush headlong into the Christmas season when we're busy and thinking about everything else. Jesus Christ is descended from Jesse to David to Solomon, down to Boaz and Ruth, down to Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his stepfather, on both sides. Jesus is, in fact, the description that is given here in Isaiah of a just all-knowing, understanding person who has all the strength, who is obedient to his Father, who does the will of God. And we see over and over again that he was proud to let people call him the Son of David, thereby identifying that he is the Messiah. And he was happy and joyful to go to the cross to take my sin, to be lifted up in front of the shame of the entire world, mocking him. Come down if you think you're the Son of God. But he was willing to do it. Why? For the Jews and for us. So that we could have the peace that only God can give. And it shall come. To it shall the Gentiles seek. And his rest shall be glorious. So here's the question I have for you today. Have you, as far as I know, nobody in here is Jewish. But if you are, it works both ways. Have you, Gentiles, have you sought God? Are you seeking him? Do you know him? Do you know the power that he has? Do you know his wisdom and his understanding and his counsel and his might and his knowledge? Do you know the fear of the Lord as you should? Have you come to a point in your life when God has spoken to you and revealed who he is and who you are that you have fallen to your knees whether physically or through the heart and said unto God I am a sinner and deserve nothing. Please God save me. Have you been changed when he gives you a new life? Do you look unto him, the author and finisher and perfecter of your faith? Are you resting in his glorious gift? Or are you still bucking against the system? Because the reality is this, nature enough, nature alone is enough to condemn you. But if you've listened to what I've preached today, you know the truth. You've heard it word for word. You've heard how God sent his son. 
You know these things. And don't think for one minute that you will have an opportunity beyond the moment your life is taken from you to stand before an almighty God and somehow make up for it. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you should look to God. The banner that he is flying over us is his son who died on the cross as a symbol to the people. And today is the day that you shall seek his glorious rest. He died to give it to you. He came in a way to fulfill every prophecy that's ever been prophesied about him. And someday at the end in his glorious kingdom, he will sit down and we will see come to fruition the verses that I skipped. The children can play with snakes and the bears lie down with the lambs because the only thing that remains is him. And so as we go through this Christmas season, this Christmas time, may we think about the importance of prophecy. May we think about the glorious and wonderful thing that God did. The tree that everyone thought was gone is bringing forth Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to give us peace now and forevermore. Lord, we thank